This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Patient-led collaborations are transforming drug discovery and development in rare disease. How they're doing this will be the topic of a panel discussion at the 2019 Biotech Showcase in San Francisco, January 8th at 4.30 p.m. Ahead of the panel, we spoke to Walt Katownik, principal at Third Rock Ventures and moderator of the panel, to discuss the challenges of rare disease drug discovery and development, how Patient-led collaborations are addressing these challenges and how patient involvement can change the risk profile of drug development to attract drug company partners and investors. Well, thanks for joining us. Oh, Dan, Daniel, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. We're going to talk about the upcoming panel you'll be moderating at the 2019 Biotech Showcase on the new era of patient-led collaborations in rare disease, drug discovery, how patients are changing drug discovery and drug development, and what they can do to accelerate the process. Perhaps we can begin, though, with what makes drug discovery and development particularly challenging in the rare disease arena. Let's start on the discovery side. Can, can you walk us through some of those issues that developers face in finding treatments for rare diseases? Sure. And, uh, you know, I think the, the rare disease space when it comes to drug discovery and development is an interesting one. Um, of course, most folks are aware that we are often talking about a genetic basis of disease, which often does teach us something about the underlying biology or the underlying pathophysiology. But I think the particular challenges of rare disease for drug discovery are often come down to the fact that we're charting an unknown course. We're often working in areas where the biology has not been worked on, whether it's academia or an industry, uh, hasn't been worked on terribly extensively. Uh, so we're, uh, once, I once heard an analogy that we're bushwhacking in the jungle versus driving down an interstate at 80 miles an hour. Um, there's a ton of discovery that has to happen along the way. And that then continues as we move into drug development. Oftentimes, a clinical trial run in a given rare disease is the first time anyone's really done a rigorous and robust clinical study in one of these rare disease patient populations. And so, again, it just amplifies what I said before, that it's truly often the unknown. Of course, there are exceptions to this. Um, one of the most uh, encouraging aspects of 
drug discovery and development today is that there are specific rare diseases where tremendous progress has been made. And I think those need to serve as the archetype for what we can do in the vast majority of rare diseases that still need new medicines. And, and I take it one of the biggest challenges is that you are dealing with, by definition, our small patient populations. And, and with that comes issues of everything from understanding the the natural history of a disease to knowing what the appropriate clinical endpoints are and wrestling with, from a regulatory perspective, what is a statistically significant result. How do drug developers wrestle with that? It's a great question, and I, I think it's such a nuanced, I have such a nuanced answer because um, in the world I work in, um, you know, in, in venture capital and company creation at the earliest stages of drug discovery, um, the patient population, the specific patient population we aim to treat is, is in such a, such an important aspect of what we wrestle with. Um, I think we're in an era right now where we're seeing the definition of disease whether it's in oncology, whether it's in what we think is of as big diseases, say you know, Alzheimer's, or in rare diseases, I think we're seeing the definition of disease take such finer and finer resolution that I think this concept of binding patients is going to become a problem everywhere in drug discovery and drug development. I think it's a old problem in the rare disease space, but it's now omnipresent across the industry. The definition of diseases, the definition of patients we aim to treat has gotten so, so fine. I think the rare disease population and in the rare disease world, um, what we're talking about though is a great example of how patient groups have really changed the landscape. Um, I think for many, many rare diseases and certainly almost any rare disease that has active patient community, ascertaining patients for a clinical trial understanding the specific nuances of the natural history are often able to be done by an industry company through interactions with the patient group, patient community. I think that makes, um, it just facilitates or helps, uh, facilitates or helps speed up the drug discovery process in these rare disease populations. Well, let's talk about that. We've seen rare disease patients both transform this area and address gaps in the discovery and development process to drive advances. If we think about that on the discovery side, what are some of the ways patients have been able to address the, the challenges and, and advance discovery? I think there are a lot of examples of it. Um, probably first and foremost, and just pervasive but perhaps underappreciated is the fact that patient and patient groups, you know, often parents, are the ones who bring diseases and the underlying biology to the attention of academics and then start building the collaborations and building the networks. Um, as I go out into the world and look at disease biology and ways of thinking about treating disease, it's often the patient community that's the center of many of uh, uh, many of the academics and the networks in these spaces, some of that is simply because of the dollars that they provide. It puts them in a position to do it naturally. But I think it's probably also um, the result of a era that we live in now with greater access to information, greater willingness of individuals to step up and push things forward, push uh, activities forward, drug discovery activities forward. It's also, um, I believe, part of a broader uh, industry trend where access to the capabilities needed, whether it's CROs, um, you know, capital, thinking about 
capital has flowed more recently in our sector. Um, I think it's also a statement about uh, some of those barriers being removed and allowing some of these groups to jump in, roll up their sleeves, and make things happen. How about on the development side? Are, are there some ways patients have been able to address the challenges of drug development? Well, we've seen some some of the uh, the traditional playbook, if you will, with regard to registries um, and the participation and enabling of natural history studies. Uh, but I think we're also seeing such a big advance in the way that drug companies, industry sponsors think about clinical metrics, clinical outcomes. Um, you know, part of this is what the agencies are doing as well, taking a greater interest in patient-reported outcomes or simply taking the time to understand for a given rare disease what it is that the patients and the patient communities uh, actually want to see. What change are they wanting to see? What is meaningful for their lives? Patient groups have really stepped up and led that effort. Often, you know, often there is an industry sponsor involved in some way, but it's them standing up and interacting with the agency uh, that has really made a difference and really led to the appreciation of what is a meaningful outcome in a clinical trial. We've also seen a change in attitude among drug developers and their interest in the rare disease space. This can be traced back to the Orphan Drug Act, but more recently, that's, that's a movement that's built. What role have patients played in making this something that's attractive to, to drug developers, and, and is that an economically viable business model for them? Yeah, I mean, I think the most, the biggest trend that I, that I've seen, um, even though it's still in its emerging phases, um, is the fact that patient and patient groups are actually funding and initiating and driving the early stages of drug discovery. Uh, I think we're seeing now that oftentimes a venture group like Third Rock where I work or, um, a pharma company that we may hear, you know, may hear some examples of this in the panel that we'll be talking about, um, next week. There, there are examples where an individual, a company jumps in and sees that some of the drug discovery, the earliest parts of drug discovery have already started to occur, whether it's in collaboration with academia or the CRO or some consortium of some sort. And what the impact of that is it greatly changes the risk profile of a potential program. If all of a sudden this very poorly understood biology has been elucidated, and maybe there are key assays. Maybe there's even a lead-off program or a development candidate available, or maybe even a, a, a molecular and asset with phase one data. Greatly changes, you know, the economic calculation that an entity might do. Um, as much as I, I hate the the word de-risk, it it serves to de-risk a program. It has created tremendous value for um, for someone who may want to jump in and drive that program forward. Well, is there any Example you can point to that patients might want to think about as they try to solve their their own disease puzzles uh, and what can be done to actually engage a, a drug company and, and push development sure. forward. I think there are a handful of examples. Um, you know, there's probably the most classic and a little bit um, less recent example when we think about the CF Foundation what they were able to do with Aurora, which became Vertex and ultimately led to uh, a handful of drugs now. Um, but I think even more recently, uh, it was only a couple of weeks ago, we saw um, 
the GM1, GM2 gene therapy programs um, be licensed by Avenex out of, um, I think, I believe it was at UMass. So there's an example of an ultra-rare disease population uh, that was able to push forward, obviously in collaboration, but push forward um, programs and ultimately attract the attention and the investment of a biotech partner. And they'll actually be starting clinical trials this year, I believe. That's my understanding as well. Well, you've got an interesting mix of panelists for the discussion you'll be moderating. I, I think one of the interesting things looking at the, the list of panelists is the different business models they represent. How do you see rare disease business models evolving, and, and do you see these things being an effective way to address the two overriding challenges of drug development, being time and money? Are, are, are there compelling approaches you're seeing today that will make a difference in, in terms of the speed and cost to market for rare disease therapies? Yeah, I'm... Please bear with me. This may be a long answer, and if I get to the end and haven't answered your question, just let me know. But, you know, I think first and foremost, um, you know, despite what may or may not be happening in the broader um, public markets with regard to biotech, um, I do think that the fundamentals in our industry have never been stronger. Uh, we are really starting to see the fruit of the massive investment into the human genome and genomics that followed over the last couple decades. Um, you know, the regulatory industry, uh, the regulatory agency in the United States has greatly changed their mentality. Um, they have, they've truly become a partner in thinking about how to demonstrate and what is meaningful efficacy for patients as opposed to, um, perhaps their stance from years ago. I think this has really created an incredible time to be involved in drug discovery. And I think, frankly, a lot of patients see this. Uh, that being said, you specifically asked about time and you asked about money. Um, you know, time fundamentally is driven by our understanding of biology, and I don't believe that, um, I believe we have the tools to elucidate that understanding, but it still takes time. There are certain things that no matter how much money or how many uh, resources we throw at it, it still takes time, and biology is, is infinitely complex, and it takes time to unravel that, identify mechanisms and ways to intervene in those mechanisms. But the money is a more interesting one. If I put my finance hat on for a moment, I think one of the most interesting implications of everything we're talking about here with patients, patient groups, families taking a more active role in the drug discovery process is that effectively what they're doing is they're putting up some of the riskiest capital needed to drive forward drug discovery. What that does is it greatly changes the risk-adjusted return, or at least the profile of risk-adjusted returns in this sector. If if they can take what might be at the very earliest stages of drug discovery, a 1 in 10,000 probability of success, and reduce it down to a 1 in 100, that has completely changed what the investment profile may look like for an industry partner, which is represented on our panel, um, a more investment-focused firm like myself or Bridge Bio. Um, it has also created an opportunity that hasn't been lost on other investors who are actually building biotech companies de novo with these groups. And I think um, Daniel from Tavard will be a good example of that. So I think fundamentally what we're seeing is that we have the tools to break down some of the most complex challenges here, the biology. But what the, ma the major piece of this is, is starting to shift and change what the risk-adjusted return profile can look like for, for drug discovery. 
As an investor in rare disease companies, I know there's a, a complex nexus of issues you'll consider, but what role does the patient community play in your decision-making? Is there a level of engagement you want to see around a specific disease before making an investment in a company that's targeting a specific area? Um, that's a great question. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about rare disease populations and where we can hopefully come up with the next wave or next generation of medicines. Um, we see engagement of patient groups all over the place. Um, and frankly, there are so many patient groups engaged in the disease biology, the academic communities, the clinical communities, that there are, there are still way more of those than we could possibly, than one person could possibly be building companies or making investments in. Um, the rate limiting quantity in all of this is our understanding of the biology and then the, the pieces needed to actually do the discovery, whether it's assays, whether it's cell lines, you know, the list of that is long. And so um, I love to see that the patient groups are really changing that and bringing the biology forward. But for me, as I, as I look at different opportunities and look at places where uh, the next wave of medicines may be created, it's still driven by what do we really know about the biology, what do we really know about the pathophysiology, what are the prospects for creating a medicine here? We're in a time of enormous innovation. A large number of therapies are advancing toward the market, and ones that in some cases provide the promise of functional cures. At the same time, there's growing pressure among healthcare systems around the world, and there's growing pressure to contain costs. How much of a threat is this to the advances being made in the rare disease arena? Yeah, I think there, there are probably two, two elements of what you said that are worth reacting to. Um, I, I love that we live in an era where it's not unreasonable to think about profoundly efficacious medicines and interventions. Um, but I'm also cautious to remember that the history of medicine teaches us that uh, when we, it's a, the history of medicine and treating rare diseases teaches us that as we wrestle and bring new medicine, wrestle with the disease and bring new medicine to bear, new manifestations of the disease emerge. Once we started to understand, by for example, once we started to understand intense dietary management of PKU, new later in life manifestations of the disease emerged. So I'm, I'm always very, very cautious to use the word cure because I think medicines, particularly profoundly efficacious medicines, can push the ball forward and make a massive difference in patients' lives. But we should never be naive enough to believe that we've solved the disease. All that being said, um, I do think that with the innovations, we do stand to make some pretty ma uh, amazing and massive differences in some of these disease states. And that's, that's incredibly exciting and incredibly inspiring to think about what we might be able to do over the next decade. As an investor in this arena, what's the case for investing in rare disease therapies? Well, I think first and foremost, um, as much scrutiny as there may or may not be on drug pricing right now, we do still live in a world where human health is valued and making a difference in patients' lives, making a difference in the lives of families has value and continues to be uh, paid for. We can have a lot of discussion over about the margins and, and how much pricing is fair and you know what might not be fair. I think there's a lot of debate that has happened will continue to happen there. But fundamentally, as a society, if we continue to, make, to value making a difference in patients' lives, there will be opportunity in treating these, these diseases. 
and helping these patients. Walt will be moderating a panel during the 2019 Biotech Showcase in San Francisco on Tuesday, January 8th at 4.30 p.m. at the Hilton Union Square. You can find more information about the panel and register by going to globalgenes.org forward slash rare in the square. Scroll down and click on the RSVP link to register for the event. Walt Katanik, Principal at Third Rock Ventures. Walt, thanks as always. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.